Our scripture reading today comes from um, the Gospel of John, chapter 9 and verse 4. Jesus is talking with the disciples and he makes this statement. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. You know, all men are like grass and all their glory like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it uh, is our prayer that um, you would speak to us this day. That we would hear your word. And we would understand both the power and significance of it. Not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the people that we come in contact with day in and day out. We ask, Lord, that you would help us um, as we uh, go into our week, as we leave this building here that we would take uh, some of what we found when we gathered here with us. That having walked through these doors, uh, we walk out different people. All because you are faithful to us and you meet with us. And you are at work in our lives, changing us and making us more and more into the image of your Son. May we take that seriously. And may we ever be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And may we be ready as messengers and as ambassadors for the cause and sake of Jesus Christ. In whose wonderful name we pray. Amen. Oh, Dr. Uh, Farad Fatah was sentenced recently to 45 years in prison. He billed almost $35 million to patients and insurance companies, and of that, almost $18 million was for unnecessary treatment, uh, which caused harm to his patients. Fatah built an empire consisting of seven oncology practice sites, a pharmacy, a diagnostic testing center, a radiation treatment center, and a sham charity. And he did all of that by diagnosing perfectly healthy people with terminal cancer and then filling them with toxic chemotherapy, sometimes for years. He overtreated patients that did have cancer, in some cases uh, administering nearly four times the recommended dosage, and in one case at least continuing that, uh, that uh, treatment for years instead of six months, which was the recommended time of treatment. He, he continued to order chemotherapy for patients in remission of cancer, And many who really were terminal and had no hope at all, he told they had a 70% chance of recovery so that they would continue uh, to take the therapy right up until the point when they finally died. 
and patients that he couldn't make a profit from, he undertreated. Now, some people think that the 45 years that he got is not enough. And I guess I tend maybe to agree with them. Uh, you know, when you hear about something like that, what this so-called doctor did, and how does that affect you? I mean, if you're anything like me, you are, in a sense, when you hear it, emotionally stunned. I, I mean, his self-centeredness is really almost blinding. You, you grope for words to express the depth of depravity. Uh, you feel overwhelmed by, by the sense of loss, uh, the cost in money and pain and sorrow and anguish and death, not just for the individuals who suffered under this man's supposed care, certainly for them, yes, but their families too. And, but it goes even beyond those things. The human family itself has been betrayed at a time like that. And behind all of these emotions comes anger. And for some, it's a, it's a kind of a slow-burning thing as it begins to shape, take shape, and then it grows. While for, for others, it, it virtually explodes within them. And the intensity of our anger, whether it grows slowly or rushes upon us, can surprise us. Uh, many of us have trained ourselves over the years to guard against it, but something like this may just simply overwhelm all of our carefully developed defenses. The strength of those feelings can also frighten us. We, we, we grab hold of, uh, of the idea of justice at times like this in order to, to at the very least, try to explain those feelings. I mean, there is... This gut-level understanding that all people seem to have as more than just a feeling, and yet maybe it's not easily defined, but it demands of us that this kind of thing simply cannot go unpunished. And so we invoke the name of justice, and rightly so, knowing that something must be done. Finally, we sentence a man to some penalty that we hope may indeed fit the crime. How much resolution comes to our hearts and minds when those sentences are, are passed depends partly, I think, on our perception of just how evil the crime is and how just we think the penalty. But I have a question for you. Setting aside all of the arguments uh, about the need for justice, how, how do we understand that anger that we feel at times like that. I mean, are we justified in feeling such anger, or are we in fact sinning when we experience it? So in order to answer those questions and to understand the place of anger, maybe a little bit better in our life, we need to look away for a little while from our own human emotions to something bigger and better than ourselves. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to join me once again in the book of the Revelation, chapter 15. We've been making our way through this book, and we've come to this place today. Revelation, we're going to try to cover the whole chapter today. Revelation chapter 15. Now this chapter really tells us something about God's anger against such things. And the term that we often use when talking about it is God's wrath. Now I'm not sure what ideas that term communicates to your mind, but for me it means it's an anger 
that God has. It is without sin, but it is also without limit. And both of those ideas exist because we're talking about God. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard about God's anger in the book of Revelation, but this is the first place where the focus is on that wrath. And so verse 1 launches us into the subject this way. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now, we need to make some, several observations about this verse. Uh, there's a lot here, uh, and, and we need to kind of understand. And this passage, this verse, sets up what follows. And, and the first thing we can say here is that this is a sign. That means it, it's a symbolic representation of the truth. And as such, we need to take care in our interpretation. John sees this as a sign in heaven, and so apparently he's back on earth now. Actually, he has been since about chapter 10. At one point, he was up in heaven, and I think back chapter 10, he was back down on earth. And, and so he's on earth, and he's looking up in heaven from earth. And, and so what that's telling us is that our understanding comes from above. You see, we dare not look at ourselves and apply what we see when we look at ourselves to God. Rather, we need to look at God to gain a real understanding of reality of the world that we live in and, and what it's supposed to look like. And we're going to talk about why that's important in just a little while, but, but I'm sure that you really already know that, don't you? You know that we aren't the measure of all things, though our culture around us is always telling us man is the measure of everything. We understand differently. God really is that measure. And then we need to understand what is meant by the words that God's wrath is completed. Because after all of these things that we're going to see in this chapter, in the next chapter, this pouring out of God's wrath, these bowls, uh, there still comes the great white throne judgment when all of the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. And so the wrath that's completed here in this passage uh, it is really wrath as is expressed here in this time. Now, there, there's really a lot to say about God's wrath, and it goes well beyond the scope uh, that we have uh, here. But the Bible tells us that God's wrath is expressed every single day, now in this lifetime. And, and part of the reason for that is it's a warning against sin, but it's also a partial penalty or payment for sin. And it's that earthly expression of wrath that's completed with the last of these seven plagues that we will see in chapter 16. Now, let's see what else we can learn from God's wrath from this chapter. I have to tell you, there are three things that we can say about God's wrath against sin. The first thing we can say is that God really hates sin and is angry at it and at those who perpetrate it. Now, some people have lost sight of this fact. I mean, they see God as simply meek and mild. I mean, he is that, isn't he? But, but he's a whole and complete and real God. He, he's not just the God of our fantasies or our imagination or our wishes. He's a real God, and he expresses real anger. So the first thing we can learn from this passage, and we'll see it in a minute, is that God really hates sin. He's angry at it and those who per per 
uh, perpetrated. And the second thing is his wrath is holy. That is it's pure and it's clean. And the third thing is that his wrath is pending. And I'll explain that in just a moment. So to to see the first two things, we need to jump ahead to verses 6 and 7 where we read this. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. See, these verses emphasize that God really is angry at sin and those who perpetrate it. Uh, This is not some rogue set of angels who are somehow off the reservation. Uh, they, They have somehow gotten out of God's control. They come from the temple itself, representing the place where God dwells. And, and the bowls are, are filled um, with, uh, with uh, the, the wrath of God, even as the scripture tells us. And, um, and, and there are seven of those bowls, which means that it's a complete uh, uh, completion of his wrath. And so there's no doubt here that God is angry and it's real and it is if we can put it this way brim full the bowls are absolutely full seven of them a number of completion that means that it's complete in itself and and the wrath is pure it's nothing mixed in it nothing such as mercy or grace is mixed in with it the bowls contain all God's wrath they're filled to the brim with that And yet, having said that, God's wrath is holy. It's pure and it's clean. And we know that instinctively, don't we? Because we know God. We know him and we know that he's good. So symbolically, it's communicated to us by the angels who are dressed in clean and shining linen with gold sashes. And the bowls are are uh, full of plagues, are gold. And see, the work that the angels are doing is not dirty, it's clean, it's holy, it's good. And his anger in those golden bowls because there's nothing evil in it, there's nothing evil about it. It's of God and his anger doesn't contain any sin at all. You know, John, First John tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all even when it comes to his anger the problem that we have isn't it is that we 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 are never without that sin it's never very far from us here's where we begin understanding that answer to the question that we posed earlier Uh, it is in us almost always our anger accompanied by sin if it's not sin itself and what I mean is sometimes we're angry for all of the wrong reasons I don't really have to tell you what those are because I know you know what they are but sometimes we're angry because our pride is hurt or sometimes we're angry because our plans are frustrated or someone gets in our way or we've simply had a bad day and we lose it Or sometimes we just lose it even when we haven't had a bad day. And it's all because we're sinners. And our anger is out of place at those times. It's not at all righteous. And it is itself sin 
at those times. But then sometimes we are angry for the right reason. We, we find that we're angry about the same thing that God is angry about, but it doesn't remain pure in us. It becomes sin in us. We, we desire, for instance, to see the perpetrator hurt. We, we take a perverse joy in their failure or in our heart. We would withhold forgiveness if it were salt. You know, we rarely, if ever, experience anger without it either being sin or being accompanied by sin. There is such a thing. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But as sinners, we need to be really cautious about it. And maybe no human being but Jesus has ever really exhibited that righteous anger without experiencing sin with it. I'm not sure I ever have. See, that's our problem. It's not the anger necessarily. Sometimes it is. But it's the sin that trips us up. God doesn't have that problem. You understand that. He doesn't have that problem. So God is angry at sin, and he's angry at those who perpetrate it, but his anger is always pure. It's always holy. It's always clean. And right now, that anger is pending. And and what I mean is this. It's coming, but it hasn't been realized yet. He's expressing some of it, Every day, he does so to help us to understand the seriousness of sin. And there's some, maybe, repayment of sin. But the real anger, the real wrath is still pending. And the reason I can say this is that the subject of God's wrath has been brought up in verse 1 of this chapter, but it's not until verse 6 that the angels come out of the temple with the plagues. In verse 7 where they're given the bowls containing God's wrath, which are poured out onto the world in the next chapter, in verse chapter 16. And between those two symbols are four verses that make that wrath mentioned in verse 1 pending. And verse 5 tells us the reason God's wrath has not already been poured out, even though it's real, even though it's potent, even though it's righteous, even though it's pure. And so we read in verse 5, after this, meaning verses 2 through 4, which we'll talk about momentarily, I looked and I, I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Do you know what that means? The temple was open. It meant that people still could come into it. See, the temple represents the place where people come to Uh, to be with God and to meet with him. It represents the place where they can find forgiveness for their sins. And so God's wrath is real and it's holy, but it's pending. It's not yet poured out because there's still a chance to avoid it, to get out from under it. Now that's one thing, by the way, that we often overlook in our anger. And that is, is God is willing to forgive. I mean, I mean, his forgiveness isn't cheap. It costs him the life of his son. But it is free to all who come to him. To those who do come, there is no condemnation left. We often overlook that in our anger. We remember it. It begins to help us to put that anger that we have in the right place. 
Now verses 2 through 4 tell us a little bit more about how we can escape God's wrath. And I say it like that because in many ways this entire book of Revelation has been about escaping the wrath that is to come. The forgiveness and relationship with God is talked about here is not new. It has appeared over and over again as we've made our way through the book because God really desires that. He really would rather not have to be angry. He, he opens the door to heaven for us. He invites us in. And he does that because he really wants us there. So verses 2 and 3 tell us about those who've come to God. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Now I want to stop here for a moment and remind you that we've seen much of this already before. There's a lot here in these passages, but um, we can make quick work of it. We're going to have to for time's sake, but it's not new to us. We've looked at some of this before, so it shouldn't be hard, too hard for us to move rather quickly. We saw this sea of glass, for instance, back in chapter 4, and there it was described as clear as crystal. And here it's described as glowing with fire. And so that clarity would represent purity, and fire would represent the consuming holiness of God. And both of those things are true. And it was in chapter 4, too, that the living creatures were talked about in relation to the throne in the sea here, right? And, and, uh, and here what we are seeing is that those who are victorious over the Antichrist are highlighted. And if you remember, we, what we learned back then was is that those four living creatures really were the closest creatures in all of creation to the throne until the redeemed arrived. And so it is here. The redeemed are within that circle of purity and holiness represented by the glass seed. Uh, and here, those standing by that sea are specifically call, uh, named as those who overcome the Antichrist. And, and so we have to note that the victorious over the beast may mean a number of things. It may mean that they were martyred or they suffered persecution or possibly it just meant that they hadn't given in, they were ready to be martyred, uh, ready to endure, but it just hadn't gotten to that point. But I have to tell you something and, and this isn't again not new to you because we've said this over and over again. I believe the book of the Revelation is about the end times, but it's applicable to all times. And so these people here standing inside that circle of purity and holiness really represent any of us who overcome Satan, whether through martyrdom or persecution or just simply living out the life of faith day in and day out and not giving way to the devil. We continue reading. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And we've seen this too. I mean, the redeemed worship the living God, and so the victorious here hold harps, and they were rewarded by God with those harps. It said, I think it means it's natural to think of them after talking about their victory over the Antichrist. And the victors also sing, and I have to tell you, I'm really glad about that, because <laughs> there's yet hope that I might be able to sing. And I do so love to be here on a Sunday morning and sing, even if it doesn't sound all that good. See, their song, though, is a, 
There's a song of God's servant Moses. And, and that indicates a song specifically of the Jewish element of heaven. And it was a song of the Lamb, who is a son over all of God's house. Moses was the greatest servant in God's house, but the Lamb is a servant as a son over God's house, indicating that Christian element, and yet it's one song. Just one song, and it combines both of those elements. And whatever distinctions there might have been, they've all gone away. They're bound and united in this one great song which all the victors can sing. And in the song they sing this. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. And the part of the song of the victors found in verse 3 here, there are two themes. And that, that song, it continues in verse 4 where it builds on these themes. But, but the first thing it mentions is the acts of God. Oh, the things that God does, they're great. They're, they're marvelous. And all of them are. You understand that none of them are left out. And that means even the expression of his wrath when he expresses it is included in that statement. It's not something that God will do in secret or in a corner or in shame. We're often ashamed of our anger, aren't we? At least I know I have been. And so often the result simply is sin. But even when it's not, again, it's almost always accompanied by sin. But God's anger is righteous and it's just and it's holy and even great and marvelous. And we're reminded with this statement that the one who is acting is God, who is the Lord, who is almighty. And the second thing is, is God's ways. I suppose we could think of them of his motives. You I mean, God always acts out of a just and true heart. And again, that means that all of God's motives are true and pure and just. None of them are left out. And again, even the expression of his wrath is included. You know, when God expresses that wrath, when he pours it out, he's not having a fit. He is not throwing a tantrum. He is acting justly and truly in the fullest and most complete sense of that word. And again here, it is that he is the king of nations who has the absolute right to rule those nations. God's wrath is, is real. It's holy. But it's pending as he waits for any who will to come in. Now, now verse 4 continues the song of the victors, building on what we saw in verse 3. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? And I'm going to pause right there. So we talked about fearing God um, last week. And and it was advice, if that's the right word, to use that the first angel, which really represented the people of God as they declare his message, is to fear God, right? We talked about that last night. But here, the fear is put into a question, and it's asked this way, who will not fear you, Lord? And the implication is this, everyone will fear God. Everyone will. Believers choose the fear of the Lord. They recognize that God is great and all-powerful, and they know that they're sinners, and they deserve condemnation, and yet they're recipients of undeserved grace. Uh, they were bought by the blood of God's Son, and so we're freed from our sin. And that, that 
fear is yet real but wholesome and it's good and it's encouraging uh, maybe we could imagine what it would feel like i don't know i'm trying to, trying to figure out how to explain it but but i can imagine standing maybe next to a nuclear device that would be fired against an evil enemy knowing the terrible power of destruction there is and yet knowing that I'm safe something about God's fear and the fear of God is like that so unbelievers are going to fear God too you understand that not as a choice but as a necessity discovering when they do that they're on the wrong side of eternity and there's no one who can rescue them their fear will be real and it'll be nothing but terror, like those who would, who would see that same nuclear weapon only this time bearing down on them for destruction. See, the question about fearing God is coupled with bringing glory to his name. And here the idea again is that everyone will indeed do just that. Everyone will bring glory to God's name. I have to explain something really quickly. Bringing glory to his name isn't, uh, is, is a, it's like a proclamation of who God is, an exaltation of his glory. And it's a really different phrase than we looked at last week, giving God the glory, which was uh, you know, an idiom that Christians use for inviting people to Christ. But believers will give glory to God, and they're going to do so willingly. And we have been doing it willingly, and we rejoice in it. But unbelievers are going to do it too. They'll bring glory to God, but unwillingly. As those who are receiving their just punishment for for holy God has to punish that unrepentant sin, and it is glory for him to do so. And again, verse 4 says, For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Only God is truly holy in the sense that he alone is set apart from everyone and everything else. He is a creator. Everything else is created. He's the judge. Everything else is to be judged. He's the redeemer. Everything else is redeemed. He's the king. And we are his subjects. Only he has always been. All others did not exist at one time. He is self-existent. The great I am. All others exist because he made them and sustains them. All of the nations will come, meaning they will come whether they want to or not. All of the nations will worship before God. Again, whether they want to or not, they will be compelled. And what it will look like is only a conjecture, but I imagine it will be a kind of a forced acknowledgement that God is God where every knee will bow. All God's righteous acts have been revealed to this point. All are going to acknowledge that God was and is and always be, and he is right and always will be righteous. Everyone is going to see that clearly. There will be no denying it and no ex- uh, excuses. Yeah, I think we could sum up what we've just looked at by saying this. There's a choice set before all humankind. Before each man, before each woman, before each child. Embrace the fear and choose to worship. Or be overwhelmed by the fear 
and forced to worship. There really are no other alternatives. See, God's wrath is real. It's holy. It's pending. It's waiting on the choices that people make, but it is coming. And when it comes, for those who are not already victorious, all is lost. That's the last thing I want us to see. And with this, we're almost finished. Verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven last plagues of the seven angels were completed. You said seven angels came out of the temple. They were given the bowls full of God's wrath. And the temple was open. But now, as that wrath is being poured out, the temple's closed, the time has passed, no one can enter. All there is for those on the outside is God's wrath. And maybe the most important concept to take away from this verse is really a time is coming when no one can enter the temple, when no one can find forgiveness or come to God. And that too, my friends, that too is a result of who God is and that he's powerful and glorious. So come, <laughs> while the way is still open. I have to tell you that as I've looked at this passage, and, and I know there's a lot of symbolism there, but pretty much what we've said boils that down and makes us understand God's wrath is real. It's holy, it's pure, and, and we're going to either embrace the fear of God and choose to worship him or we're going to be overwhelmed by that fear and forced to worship him. And we want people to come to him before the doors close. Now what's helpful for me as I think about this passage is that what's going on here is symbolic about what is going to happen in the end times. The day is going to come when that door is going to close and no one will be able to enter. But it's also what's happening here and now. And we know that. We know that God's wrath is real. We know it's good, it's holy, it's pure. We know it's coming, but we know it's not here yet. And I think that's something to rejoice over. There's a chance for that loved one, that chance for that coworker, a chance for that neighbor to get out from under that wrath that is coming as surely, well, as surely as anything you can name or imagine or think of. And what stands between that wrath and then may very well be you or me. I was 25 years old working a part-time job in the back of a 7-Eleven. I didn't know God. I was reading the Bible trying to figure it out. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. 
This guy showed up at the 7-Eleven where I worked. And one day he made a comment, and I knew he was a religious nut. (laughs) And I asked him a question. I said, George, what do you think about? And his response to me is, you don't want to know what I think. You want to know what the Bible says. And he went out to his car, and he got this Bible, and he showed me from God's Word the answer to my question. The reason I found out later on that he was there is because he felt like God was telling him, go talk to that guy. That was back in the days when I shaved my head and had a beard and earring and rode a Harley Davidson and had a rotten reputation with everybody around. And he had the courage to come and tell me about Jesus Christ. One day, after about two weeks of him coming in there every night I was there and opening God's word to him, I said to him, well, he read, for um, without faith it is impossible to please God, for those who come to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And the lights began coming on, and I said, where does that faith come from? And he turned to his Romans, and he showed me, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the back of the 7-Eleven strike, I got down on my knees, and I asked Christ into my life. Never been the same. Never been the same. That's what it's about. Everything else is a distraction. Somebody you know is right there. Or the seed needs to be planted or it needs to be watered, but some of them are right there. And maybe, just maybe, if you're willing to open the Bible, if you're willing to take that step of faith, you can be the one to bring in the sheave. God's wrath is is real. It's holy. It's pure. It's coming. But it's not here yet. And you can make the difference. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you uh, that your wrath has stayed that the little bit that uh, comes out each and every day is really for our good and our benefit. And yet, Lord, it's a a frightening thing to realize what's going to come. It's a terrifying thought to know that there are people we know who may be standing on the outside when that day comes. Help us to be faithful, to share the word with them, But, Lord, we understand that that starts a bit further back. We need to be faithful simply in the way we live, day in and day out. So help us to do that so we will be truly ready. And that you can use us to bring that good news home to the heart of someone we love or know. Or even those, Lord, that maybe we don't like. Still you love them. 
Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.